In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the book of Psalms, Psalm 21. As you know, each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David. A Psalm of David means the author is David the prophet. To the chief musician means it is addressed to the chief musician, which is who is the leader of the choir. Like Heman or Asaph, other scholars said chief musician is the Lord Jesus Christ. So David addressed this psalm in a prophetic way toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 20, which is one psalm for 21, is a prayer of success for the king. So Psalm 20, the king used to pray before the battle. Psalm 21 the one we will study tonight is a psalm of thanksgiving after prayer after sorry after victory psalm of thanksgiving prayer after victory uh, something it was used to celebrate the victory obtained over Sanharib others said it was used uh, on the recovery of Hezekiah and the grant of 15 years of longer life to him. Others considered this psalm is a song of rejoicing composed by David for his victory over the Ammonites, which ended in the capture of the city of Rabbah and the crown of whose king David put on his head. But many scholars and many early church fathers said this psalm is referring to the victories of the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, because there are several expressions as we'll explain, in this psalm, which apply to our Lord only, not to David or to any other person. So like it is a prophetic psalm, uh, psalm of David, prophetic psalm about the victories of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people probably, like a chorus, meet the returning hero from the war after victory in the battle with their shouts of praise to God from verse 1 to 7. So on the returning of the king after his victory in the battle, so people say verses 1 to 7 to praise the Lord. And then the king will be addressed from verse 8 to 12. Perhaps he will be addressed by the leader of the procession. And then the whole crowd again unite in a prayer of praise to God at the end, verse 13. Verse Before the Christian time, this psalm was certainly used in the temple worship. And for several generations, it was used by the liturgical Christian in the celebration of the Feast of Ascension. So this psalm was used to celebrate the Feast of Ascension, a celebration of the commemoration of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to his glory in heaven and to his role as our greatest high priest. The outline of the psalm, we can divide it into two sections. 
from verse 1 to 7, a thanksgiving prayer for victory. And from verse 8 to 13, confidence of further victories. Confidence of further victories. So let's start by verse 1. Verse 1. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. As I told you, Psalm 20 is a psalm of supplication before the battle. So in Psalm 21, the prayers of Psalm 20 now have been answered. The victory is achieved and the king rejoices. But you may ask why he used the future tense by saying the king shall have joy. We expect to say the king rejoiced. Why he is saying it in the future? So the future is used to give the idea of continuity, meaning the king rejoices now and will go on rejoicing. David here speaks for himself in the first place, professing that his joy was in the strength of God and in his salvation, not in the strength or success of his armies. He rejoiced in the strength of the Lord and in his salvation. He also directs the people to rejoice with him, to give God all the glory of the victories he had obtained. So here David is not giving himself any glory, but asking the people to rejoice in the strength and salvation of God. In a prophetic way, this verse speaks of Christ who prevailed over the powers of darkness, Satan and all the armies of Satan. So David's victories were but shadows for the victory of Christ. The king shall have joy in your strength. Actually, the king in the ancient Jewish Targum, which is the Chaldean version of the Old Testament, and also in the Talmud, the word king in verse 1 was Melek Mashayak. Melek, you know, Hebrew and Arabic are very close. So Melek means Malak, Malik or king. Mashiach is Messiah, El Messiah, the anointed one. So, in Old Testament versions, in the ancient versions, not only the king, but this verse says the king, the Messiah literally means the anointed king, but prophetically it refers to the Messiah, to our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that the Jews in an early period understood these words to be spoken of the Messiah. But a change came in the Middle Ages as a result of a judgment by Rabbi Solomon Isaac, known as Rashi, he was born in 1040 uh, before Christ. Sorry. He was born in, in 1040 AD. He endorsed the early view that the, the correct word is King the Messiah. 
But he suggested that the word Messiah be dropped, saying, quote, Our old scholars interpreted this psalm of King Messiah, but in order to meet the schismatics, schismatics means a Christian who believe in the Messiah. So in order to be able to dialogue with them, the Jews and the Christian, it's better to understand it of David himself. That's why he dropped the word Messiah. We can say that Psalm 20 is a song of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as he entered into the battle of the cross. Psalm 20 is before the battle. So, Psalm 20 reflects the day of tribulation in which the Lord Jesus Christ was about to deliver his life as a burnet offering. Then the Father responded to his supplication and to his atonement on behalf of all the believers. So now Psalm 21 is praise of the resurrection being the song of the king, the conqueror over death and the grantor of joy to all those who enjoy his resurrected life. So Psalm 20 before the cross, Psalm 21 is the psalm of resurrection. And as we see in verse 1, David has not rejoiced in his own throne, nor in the strength of his army, but in the strength of the Lord and in his free salvation. So David did not rejoice in his throne, nor in the strength of his army, but in the strength of the Lord and in his free salvation. In the same way, we, being united with the Son of God, should reign, should overcome our lusts, and to live by the resurrected life of Christ as conquerors and victorious. As St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always lead us as captive in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Uh, verse 2 You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So David is praising God because he gave him the desire of his heart and also the request of his lips. So the strength and salvation of God came to David in response to both the desire of his heart and his spoken prayers. But St. Augustine refers the whole psalm to Christ, and he says, he desired about Christ. Christ desired to eat the Passover and to lay down his life when he would, and again he would to take it in resurrection, and it has given to him. So the father granted the son the desire of his heart and has not deprived him of the good pleasure of his lips. What is What his lips uttered? My peace, he says, I live with you, and it was done. By his resurrection, he reconciled the man with his brother, man with God, man with himself, so the peace, the request of his lips was granted to him. Whatever Christ's heart desired or his lips requested has been given him. That desire he eagerly pursued when he was on earth, the desire of salvation to all of us, both by prayer, actions, and suffering. His heart 
longed to redeem his people. Because the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ were from his heart, and the Father heard them. In the same way, if our hearts are right with God, he will also fulfill the desires of them that fear him. If the desire of our heart are aligned with God, God will fulfill the desires of our heart. Then there is word Selah at the end of verse 2. Selah is a pause. And probab- properly inserted that we may venerate the victory of the king's prayer. So when you read the word Selah, it is pause to reflect and meditate. So here it is opportunity to give thanks to God for his strength and his salvation that he has shown in our life and for the glorious way he always answers our prayer. Verse 3 For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. So, you meet him with the blessings according to the Hebrew text for you preceded him with the blessings of goodness. And uh, this matches the Arabic translation. لَأَنَّكَ تَتَقَدَّمَهُ بِبَرَكَاتِ خَيْرِ تَتَقَدَّمُهُ Preceded, not just meet him. So, you preceded him with the blessings of goodness. God gave him blessings before he asks, and more than he asks. The word preceded means God gave David blessing even before David asks, and more than he asks. Assuredly, God the Father also preceded the Son with blessings. Before the Son died, believers were saved by the anticipated merit of his death. And before his incarnation, believers saw the day of the Lord and were glad. As the Lord said about Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. That what mean you preceded him with uh, blessings of goodness. Also, as I told you, God gave us blessing without asking. No one has sought a savior. No one thought that God would become man. Yet out of God's love, the initial promise that was given to Adam and Eve that the offspring of the woman would strike the serpent's head was attained, even without asking. Adam and Eve did not ask for it, but gave him the promise. God's gifts to men were all initiated by his love and his goodness. You preceded him with the blessings of your goodness before we even exist or came to know him. As we St. Paul said, and also we repeat it in St. Gregory Liturgy, who gives us more than we ask or understand. More than we ask or understand. It is mentioned that David, as a result of one of his wars, did actually take the crown of the conquered king, which was a crown of gold, from off the king's head and placed it upon his own head. And and that's your question. It's in Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 30. I can read it quickly. Second Samuel 
let's read from verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in the great abundance. So, the scholars said that David chanted this psalm 21 after this victory over the Ammonites. Why? Because David literally took the crown of the king and put it on his head. And here in verse 3, he said, For you meet him with the blessings of goodness, you set a crown of pure gold, as the description that we read it in uh, Psalm chapter 12, uh, upon his head. Uh, but maybe this is not the meaning inter- intended here. If we look at this verse from a prophetic uh, eye, our Christ was crowned on the cross. As David said, you set a crown of pure gold upon his head. Yes, the head of, of Christ was never set or had a crown of gold. But the thorns were crowns of glory. So Jesus wore the thorny crown, but now in heaven he wears the glory crown. So pure gold refers to the uh, crown of glory in heaven. It's a crown indicating royal nature, majesty, glory, and triumph. Verse 4, he asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. So if we apply this to David, David prayed for the preservation of his life as he was going to war, and now he celebrated the answer to that prayer. And any battle, the, the life of the people and the king are in great danger. But here, when God preserved the life of David, as if David was giving life and length of days, instead of being killed in this battle, he has length of days. So the first words may suit King David. But the length of days forever and ever does not refer to David, forever and ever. Forever and ever only refer to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So in the full sense of the promise, uh, we can look here at it from a messianic, prophetic about Jesus Christ, being fulfilled in Jesus Christ who alone of David's uh, successors lives forever and ever. So you give him, he asked life from you and you give it to him, resurrection. Length of days forever and ever because the Lord reigns forever and ever. Verse 5, His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. 
David felt indeed that his condition as a king and as to the prospects before him was one of great glory and honor. So he is saying, God, because you saved me, you honored me with glory. So the glory of of King David was great because of the salvation of the Lord. But he felt that it was not in himself, this glory, or for anything that he had done it, but only in the salvation which God had conferred upon him. Also speaking of Christ, if we look at the son from prophetic, the father has glorified the son. For our sake, he emptied himself, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. And for our sake, he was glorified. As we read in Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 17, received from God the Father honor and glory, the glory which he had with the Father before the worlds, as we read in John chapter 17 and verse 5. So Jesus was delivered from all his troubles and sorrows and out of the hands of all his enemies when he was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God and crowned with glory and honor. So the sense here is his glory is great in heaven because of the salvation that he gave to his people. Then he said, honor and majesty you have placed upon him. In exalting him at the right hand of the Father above all creatures and things, that's how he was uh, honored. Uh, with majesty. Also honor and majesty you have placed upon him when Jesus was given all power in heaven and on earth and in putting all the gifts of the Holy Spirit into his hand which he also gave to us and in ordaining Jesus the judge of the living and the dead. He is the judge of the living and the dead. So the glory of the Lord is in the salvation he provided for us. We, the Christian, his children, are his inheritance. God has magnified him above all others, as we read in Philippians chapter 2 from verse 9 to 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David knew the exaltation that came to kings and victors in battle. But here David declared that this glory, honor and majesty that David enjoyed came from God, not from himself or from any human being. Verse 6, For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. So David proclaimed that he was most blessed forever. But it was the presence of God himself that was his greatest blessing and gladness. So the greatest blessing for David is the presence of God with him. David was more thrilled with the presence of God than with the crown of royalty and victory that he took from the king of Rabbah. This verse also is about Christ. He is most blessed in himself, for he is God. 
blessed forever. But also, Jesus Christ as our mediator, in whom blessedness is given to him for his people, as mediator between the Father and us. So he is an overflowing source of blessings to us. Jesus is an overflowing source of blessing to us. As all mankind were blessed in Abraham, in his seed, in Jesus Christ, so they were all blessed in David's seed. Christ. Jesus is seated <coughs> at the right hand of the Father. He is appointed, he is ordained or made incarnate with this very design, which is that Jesus may bless the sons of men. So when he united with our humanity, the Son of God, he blessed us. We say, in the Gregorian liturgy, you have blessed my nature in you. Barakta tabi'ati fiq. Then second part of verse 6, you have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. Jesus as Messiah, for the joy that was set before him, which joy? of redeeming the lost world by his death. So he endured the cross and is forever seated at the right hand of God. So, as St. Paul said in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he was exceedingly glad in redeeming and saving us. Although Isaiah prophesied about the Lord Jesus and described him as a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. Yet in the same time, Jesus was a man who knew what it was to be most blessed forever and exceedingly glad. He was the Prince of Peace, even when he was despised and rejected by men. Verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So in verse 7, David declared his trust in the mercies of God, and that it would continue to preserve and bless him, the mercies of God will preserve and bless him in the future. So it was not his skills that made him victorious. But faith in the strong, protecting, and conquering arm of God, all these blessings have resulted from his confidence in God and looking to God for his protection. Very wonderful is the second part of verse 7, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So, uh, David here, uh, his victorious status shall not be moved through the mercy of the Most Most High God. His faith and hope in God shall not be shaken. This is best understood also of Christ, the descendant of David. His throne, his kingdom, his government, shall remain forever and will not be moved. Jesus trusted in the Father for his support in his incarnation, for assistance and help in the time of trouble and for deliverance out of it. He trusted in the Father that he would hear him for himself and for his people and that the Father would glorify him with all glory, honor, majesty, and blessedness. So the mercies of the Most High, the mercies of the divine goodness, his power and his dominion, is enough to secure our happiness. If we put our trust in God, 
will be happy. And therefore, our trust in that mercy should be enough to silence all our fears, all our anxieties, all our worries. So this ends the first section of the psalm. Second section, it's confidence of further victories, starting from verse 8. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. So God recognized it, sorry, David recognized it that even though he was victorious in this battle, God was not done finding and judging his enemies if they seek to hide themselves or flee away from him. So, if the enemies of David, who are actually the enemies of God, if they try to hide themselves or to flee away, God actually will make David catch them. The right hand of God has defeated his enemies and our enemies. He defeated the Lord Jesus Christ, defeated sin on the cross, and defeated death by his resurrection. Satan also was defeated on the cross by Jesus Christ, our Lord. So our protection from such enemies, if we are Christian and believers, is the name and blood of Jesus Christ. You, your hand will find all your enemies. The right hand of God. Find all your enemies, Satan, sin, death. Your right hand, your mighty hand, will find those who hate you. Then verse 9, You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. As a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. The expression, the time of your anger, reminds us that as now is the time of his grace, right right now, so there will be a set time for his wrath in his second coming when he will judge the world in righteousness and give each one according to his deeds. God's enemies, those who deny his son, his hand shall find them out wherever they are when they try to flee from the justice of God. So there is no escaping from God's judgment, no going out of the reach of his hands. Rocks and mountains will not be good shelter for them. They would be wholly consumed. On his ultimate coming, the Lord will completely destroy the kingdom of Satan. He will make them as a fiery oven for themselves in the time of his anger, which is the time of his second coming in his final judgment. Some suppose verse 9 is a reference to the event mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 12:31, again in the victory over the Ammonites. Let's read it, 2 Samuel 12:31. After David put the crown on his head, as we read it in verse 30, and he brought out the people who were in it, in Rabbah, and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brick works. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The translation in English here is different, uh, different even uh, from the Arabic. In uh, authorized King James, and he brought forth the people that were therein, and put them under souls, and under hearths of iron, and under axes of iron. Here it says to work with, no, he under. 
So actually, he killed them. And, and under the axis of iron, and made them pass through the brick kiln. That's like a, a fiery oven. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people returned unto Jerusalem. Uh, so according to King James Version, uh, and also the Arabic translation, uh, he put them under the souls, under hearts of iron, under axis of iron, and made them pass through the brick which actually is like a, a fire, a fiery oven. That's why they said this verse nine, referring to what David did in uh, in Second Samuel chapter twelve and verse thirty-one, because it said. You shall make them as a fiery, fiery oven in the time of your anger. By the expression of fiery oven is probably not intended to be taken literally but metaphorically. So severe suffering is continually compared in scripture to confinement in an oven or furnace. So maybe literally he did not put them in fire, fiery oven, but metaphorically means he let them suffer, he tortured them. So the wicked would be consumed as if they were such a burning oven and if they were set on a fire and burned up. The word wrath of God in your wrath does not imply any hate or desire for revenge, but it is the wicked people who choosing for themselves and refusing to enjoy a place in the divine bosom and mercy so they set themselves by their own will to reject the mercies of God and to partake in his glories so hell is the share of all Christ's enemies is the complete misery both of the body and of the soul. Verse 10, uh, their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. So David returned to the temporal extent of God's punishment of his enemies. So how God will punish his enemies here on earth? He is saying that even their children shall be cut off, and thus their memory shall perish. He said in verse 10, you shall destroy about their offspring. This is in accordance with the statement so often made in the scripture, and with what so often occurs in fact, that the consequences of the sins of parents pass over to their children, and that they suffer in the consequences of those sins. So the children suffer from the consequences of the sins of parents. For example, if parents are gamblers, the children may live in poverty. Parents are alcoholic, children may suffer uh, from the addiction of their parents, and so on. So, all the work of their life and all the toil in which actually they prided themselves shall be forgotten. Their memory will be removed. Their very names shall be wiped out. That's why he said, you shall destroy them from the earth. The truth taught here is that the wicked will ultimately be destroyed and that God will obtain a complete triumph over them, and the kingdom of righteousness shall be at length completely established. The enemies of God's kingdom in every age shall fall under the same destiny, and the whole generation of them will at last be rooted out in his second coming, and all opposing rule, principality, uh, 
power shall be put down. Verse 11. For they intended evil against you, against God. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Now he is explaining why is this severe judgment? This severe judgment because they intended evil against God. Because they intentionally rebelled against God and his people. Even though their plans were bigger than their ability to perform. They devised a plot which they cannot or are not able to perform. So their destruction is brought upon themselves by their own selves. They plot against God and his people. Men are justly punished by God for their wicked intentions, although they be hindered from the execution of them. So they are hindered from the execution of these plots, but they are punished for their wicked intention, although these intentions were not executed. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Not the death of Christ that was indeed in itself an evil means of theirs, and they did perform it. But they expected his name would then perish, and they should hear no more of him, but rather it achieves his resurrection from the dead. So they plotted to wipe away the name of Christ, thinking by his death, they will wipe away his name. And they were able to put him to death on the cross. But they were not able to perform, to remove the name of Jesus from the world. Actually, name of Jesus reached the whole world through his resurrection from the dead. They could not prevent his resurrection. Yes, they were able to kill him, but they could not prevent his resurrection. Although they took all the imaginable care and put a stone and sealed the stone and put guardians or guards. And when they found that Jesus was really raised from the dead, they planned a wicked plot to stop people from believing it by saying that the disciples came and stole him. But in vain, they could not even stop spreading uh, the good news of his resurrection. And as the enemies of God formed many plans and done all they can to uproot the gospel of Christ from the world, but they were not able to perform it. That's why the Lord said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of heads shall not prevail against it. Verse 12 Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. So, the image here the enemies are running away on the field of the battle. With their back turned against the advancing armies of God to hide themselves from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb of God. They may for a time make bold advances in their uh, fight or battle with the children of God and threaten to overthrow everything. But as soon as they confront God, they run away. Those who have rejected and fought Christ, instead of having him rule over them and save them, shall find that even the remembrance of that will be enough to make them to eternity a fiery oven to themselves. So just rejection of Christ. The judgment of God is actually near against those who reject him. Judgment of God is near against those who reject him. It's only 
his great mercy that prevent the release of his arrows of judgment against them. So the arrows here is the arrows of judgment. You will make ready your arrows on your strength toward their faces. That's the arrows of judgment. What can save us from the arrows of judgment of God? His mercy when we believe in him and in his salvation. That's why it is a great sin that a person ignores this great mercy of God. Verse 13, which is the last verse. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. So the psalm ends as it began, with the praise of God for the blessing of victory, deliverance, and answered prayer. Be exalted, O Lord. This is the ultimate desire of all the people of God that God might be exalted above all, and that he might so triumph over all his enemies. We will sing and praise your power. After the direct statement of praise, be exalted, O Lord, David expressed the determination that he and all the people of God would continue to praise God and to do so in singing to him. How little can the strength of a man avail when the Lord makes ready his arrow on his string toward their faces and grant victory to his children? So, where is the strength of men here who are against God? His children, God's children, may safely trust in him. Why? For the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and is safe. But those who are against God, they cannot withstand when his arrows on his string are directed toward their faces. He grant victory to his children, but he grant punishment and destruction to his enemies. This actually concludes Psalm 11 from the Psalms. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.